Welcome to Mastermind, the show where you learn to develop and master your skill from the best of the best. Yes, your host, Mr. G. Welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us today on the journey towards self-mastery. Our next guest was born in Guyana and came to the States at the tender age of five. From a young age, watching performing doctors on TLC sparked his interest in medicine, and that spark never went out. He went on to obtain a bachelor's degree in biology and a minor in psychology at Northeastern University. He also graduated from Howard University as a doctor of medicine. He has a business administration degree from Long Island University with summa cum laude honors. Now that he is a practicing physician in NYC, he's paving the way for others that look like him. As the founder of Complete Health Adventures, he aims to inform, inspire, and mentor future Black and Latino physicians. Let's welcome today, Dr. Kwesi Blackman to the program. Dr. Blackman, how you doing today, sir? Doing well on yourself. I am well. I am well. Um, pleasure to have you on the program. I know, uh, you know, it has been quite uh, the struggle this past year, year and a half, two years, practically uh, dealing with COVID and uh, you know, the chaos occurring in the hospitals that we will definitely dive into. Um, so before we get into that, we kind of want to get into, you know, you and your story before we get into the COVID story. Um, so I know that on your website, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you want to be the person that you needed in your life as far as the mentorship that you provide, uh, that your business provides. So I wanted to get into, you know, you from a young age and what it was that you were looking for in your life and um, going into the work that you do and why you do the work that you do. So can we, you can start from, you know, wherever you want to start from, um, but we generally start from the young adolescent years, uh, childhood. So uh, what was that experience like for you? Uh, maybe before you came here, like, do, do you had it, did you have any rem uh, memories from um, Guyana when you come in, um, into the States and, you know, maybe you can go from there? Uh, well, thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Uh, so I was born in Georgetown, Guyana. I lived there until age of five, like you said. I don't have many memories of my time in Guyana. You know, I, I do remember spending time with my grandparents uh, when my parents came over to America before they, they brought us over, me and my sister over. Uh, I went through a preschool in Guyana and those, those times were uh, simpler times, you know, playing with marbles in the street, running around barefoot. Mm -hmm. It was some good times. Um, like I said, I came to New York in uh, 1989. We settled in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn, uh, mostly Afro-Caribbean, Haitians, Guyanese, Trinidadians community. Uh, that, that statement that I, I want to be the person I needed to, when I was growing up, you know, growing up in the immigrant community, we didn't see a lot of doctors. We didn't see a lot of lawyers. We didn't see like, you know, young, a lot of young Black professionals. Mm. And, I want to be that for the next generation. Right. Someone to go to to ask questions to to find figure out the pathway to get where they want to go or exposure to what they things they might not know is possible. Right. Um, so what what did you see like growing up? You know what was what was what were what was happening like in the in your neighborhood in Brooklyn growing up? Well, the, the regular gang banging, uh, the I believe the Bloods came to Brooklyn around 96, 97. 
around that time is when I um, was just about to start high school. You know, they were slashing people in the face over their initiation. Uh, Drive-by shootings, you know, getting robbed and robbing people and stuff like that. Mm. It, it, was, it was a difficult childhood. You know, one of my friends, you know, when we got older and we were sitting out talking about it, you know, he said we grew up in a neighborhood when he told me a story when he was um, watching a show on TV and he came down outside and he was happy because he was thinking about the, the show he just watched. And someone turned to him and said, why the F are you so happy? Wow. So that, that's the kind of mentality that some of the, the guys around our, our block used to have. Man, um, so so how how what kind of child were you growing up and seeing all this, witnessing all this? And um, did you have a vision of like the future and thinking about what you wanted to do and outside of the neighborhood? So I say the New York City public school system failed me in a certain way because no matter what I did, whatever I, whether I cut school or don't study or didn't study or didn't do anything, whatever I did, I always got promoted from fifth to sixth, seventh to eighth. Nothing happened. You know, I, I was never held back. I never got in, I got in trouble, but <laughs> a lot of stuff, you know, it rolled off my back. But my mentality was no matter what I did, I'll, you know, I'll get promoted to the next level. Right. And, you know, to become a doctor, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know anything about it, but I knew you had to go to college, you had to go to medical school. I, my mentality was, I'm just going to do what I keep on, what I was doing, and I'll get my, my, my number one choice in college is for Stony Brook University. I always remember Stony Brook University. And mm. I thought, you know, no matter what I did, I'll get promoted. Uh, when I started high school, uh, I went to Parabarn High School in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. I got left back in the ninth grade. What? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Did what what did you know why you got left back? Like what was the reason? Oh, I, I was hardly there. Ah. Know. So you weren't in school. So right. what was going on? That's still a lot. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Uh, activities. <laughs> okay. Got but, you. Uh, to me, it was like nothing because I said it doesn't matter, I'm still gonna graduate on time. It was so you, you had that I just want to pass mindset. Was that is that what you're saying right now? Like, you know, exactly. I'm, I'm still gonna pass, you know, whatever. Yeah, because you know, before seventh, eighth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I was just getting promoted no matter what. Mm. And um all knew all I knew I needed to get a 65. 65 was the passing score, and that's all I needed. <laughs> so man, the dangers got, of that, man. When I got left back in the ninth grade, that really you know hit me hard. And then I said, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to go to Stony Brook University. I'm still going to get, I'm, I'm going to go to medical school. And then I'm going to become a doctor. I don't know how I'm, how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to become a doctor. <laughs> what made you even have that, like you mentioned earlier, like you didn't have these people in your neighborhood, on your block like that. So what made you have that vision of like, that you wanted to be a doctor in the first place anyway? So like you mentioned, there was a, uh, a show on the TLC channel. Like when TLC was like a real show, me and Channel. Before the um, reality, before reality TV, huh? Before reality <laughs> um, it was called The Doctors. And it showed doctors performing surgeries, interacting with different kinds of patients. And it was just so cool to me that what they were doing. I, remember, I think I was around eight years old. And uh, I told my mother that's what I wanted to do when I grow up. 
And then when I was in seventh grade, I had a biology teacher named Mr. Teleford. He was our science teacher. Mm. And he, he, did, took, he did a class about the mighty mitochondria. And it was a biology class, and I cell biology. And I loved it. And then he told me, you know, to be a doctor, you have to be really good in biology. So when I found out you have to be really good in biology, and I love biology, and I can become a doctor, you know, I put two and two together, and that's what I want to do when I grow up. Yeah, I see that. Not not too many kids walking around talking about I love biology. So, <laughs> all right. Um. So from there, like, so you didn't know about the grades. Nobody told you like, yo, you got your grades got to be on point to be a doctor. <laughs> so no one told you about that part. No one told me about that part. <laughs> New York school system. I was get promoted you know, regardless of what I did. Mm. So, that was yeah. it. Yeah, that is, um, <laughs> that's interesting. All right. So um, I guess, you know, you're into, you know, your senior year and you said you wanted to go to Stony Brook. So I'm guessing that you applied, you applied to Stony Brook, right? So it wasn't until 11th going into 12th grade, uh, my guidance counselor called me in her office and she told me that the way I was going, I wouldn't graduate on time. Ooh. So that really put a fair God into me. <laughs> I, went to, I went to summer school, I went to night school, and I went to Saturday school. Wow. And so wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. How much school did you cut to like have to do all of that? <laughs> I, I was very, very behind. But I caught back up and I, I, I did so well I even got into so there was a program in my school called the co-op program where uh-huh. you work one week and you can go to school one week and get paid for that one week you work. Uh-huh. So, into that program, I set that goal for myself. And my first semester, or my second semester of uh, the first or second, I remember, but I got into the co-op program uh, because I, I I did so well in, in those summer schools, night school, Saturday school classes that my great my GPA went up. It wasn't that I was you know unintelligent or I couldn't do the work. It just you know I, I was motivated to do the work. And I got, so I got, so was do you think it was like the school like your teachers the school system was not motivating you to really want to achieve you know as much as you could have and do the work was it the environment like what what do you think it was exactly I think it was a mixture of both like I told you, you know I, from my own mindset was no matter what I did I was get promoted mm. so until reality you know set in that you know my greatest one of my greatest fear during that time was being a super senior. I don't know if they, the kids still have that. <laughs> well, you know, no child get gets left behind, you know, um, but some kids do struggle graduating. So, yeah, yeah. So that, I did not want to be a super senior. I did not want to be in my fifth year of high school. So when my, my guidance counselor told me if I, I can graduate on time, that was like the first time anyone ever said that. So I, I, I got into the co-op program and... I was doing very well, but you know, colleges take your 11th grade grades. Mm-hmm. My 11th grade grades weren't looking that well. Ooh. I, I didn't get accepted any colleges. And, uh, so yeah. you, you did, you got, so how many, how many schools did you apply to? I don't remember. It was, it was a few back then. And no one, no one accepted you. So what was your mindset like from there? Like did the dreams of being a doctor, did that just like, like this like disappear or what was what were you thinking at that point i wasn't smart enough i wasn't good enough i wasn't maybe i was not meant to be a doctor mm. so 
not even meant to be a doctor. I was thinking enough to get anything into college. Into college. <laughs> so it, you know, really it, it hit me hard. And then I was, uh, even if I did get into college, I was thinking about, you know, I was, I found not afford college for me. Mm-hmm. So there's all these things going through my mind. What am I going to do next? And uh, I saw a commercial for the New, uh, for New York National Guard. And it said that I would pay for my college in, you know, in the military. And that's when I decided to join the Army. Mm. Okay. Okay. So uh, what was, how long did you spend in the Army? And what was like your experience, uh, you know, being in the Army? Well, uh, September 11, 2001 was my first day in the United States. Army. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, that is that is crazy. That is crazy, man. Like, what what was the state of everything like from that perspective? Because we have like the perspective of you know everybody watching the nine eleven attacks on television, and um, you know like the outside perspective. But at, like in the army, your first day, your very first day is nine eleven. That is wow. What what were you thinking? And what was what was going on? Like, what was everybody's like, what was everybody thinking and doing at that point in time, man? So to go back for a second, um, when I did decide to join the Army, I went to the MEPS, the Military Interest and Processing Station here in Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn. And my recruiter took me to take the ASVAP. And, you know. That's the test to see where, you're, where, you, where, where you should be placed at? Yes, yeah, so that's a test to see what job you qualify because, I didn't really understand the military. They, they gave me a test and they really explained to me what the test was for. And mm-hmm. actually, the day I took the test, I was actually high from the night before. <laughs> but actually, like years later, uh, I, figured, I, found, I found my old test sheet and I scored well enough to choose any job in the military that I wanted. Wow. But uh, I was a 17 year old kid and they put me in a, a room with a sergeant first class, a very high ranking. Soldier. So you 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 had no idea how how intelligent you were. No. Wow, that's that's fascinating, man. So uh, he offered me the first. I told all I told him was I wanted a job with a, a big bonus. You know, seventeen year old kid. You know, I, I want money. That was my my main focus. Um, he offered me to be an infantryman, but I knew what an infantryman was, and I said no, I don't want to do that. And what is an infantryman for those that don't know? An infantryman is like the the grunts, the soldiers that you see fighting wars. You know, if you go, through, go back to the old World War Two, Three, uh, World War uh, One and Two uh, videos, they show soldiers in the trenches running around shooting each other. Front line. So they're the front line guys. Front line, yes. They're yep. combat soldiers. But uh, then he offered me a job as a field artilleryman. So I didn't know what a field artilleryman was. So I asked him what that is. And he said, I'll be sitting in an office and people come to, some come to me to get am- uh, ammo. And that's that was my job. Uh, that was a blatant lie. Field artillery soldiers, that's an infantryman with a, uh, a cannon. So you're doing what? It's an infantryman with a cannon. Wow. You know, so they wow. told you you'd be doing desk work, but you talk about like, like, <laughs> like whoa, $18,000 signing bonus. Um, so the day. Uh, I, I I wanted to go to the West Indian Day Parade, uh, the, we call it Lady Day Parade here in Brooklyn, before I shipped out. So I got it in my contract that you know I wanted to ship on September 11th. 
and it was a Tuesday. My recruiter came and got me around 6.30 in the morning and took me to get sworn in for my second time. At around 8.30, I was in the lunchroom in the cafeteria area and everyone was getting up and leaving, going to the viewing area. They, there was an area with a TV and everyone was standing around it. So I came out the, the cafeteria and I was standing and I was, we were seeing the, the plane fly into the Twin Towers. Wow. And I, was, I asked the sergeant next to me, what movie is this? And he turned to me and said, this ain't a movie, we're going to war. Whoa, yeah. They, they canceled their, all the flights because I was supposed to go to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, the home of the field artillery. Uh, I, they canceled all the flights. They put us in a hotel in Staten Island. And my father came and got me. And I, I think a day later, my recruiter called me and asked me if I'm, if I'm still going. And I, I said, there's nothing here in Brooklyn for me. <laughs> I'm going. And then they, they shipped me out on, uh, they changed my date to September 16th. I was in Ports of Oklahoma. Man, that's, that's, wild. that's wild, man. So once you get there, like, what was, was everybody like in war mode or were they, were, were, were they afraid? Like, what was the, the emotion, the, what was the atmosphere like there? In basic training, it wasn't like really war mode. So I also got my duty station at, at Choice, uh, where I was going to be stationed. And I, I chose the 10th Mountain Division. And come to find out, the 10th Mountain Division is the most deployed unit in the United States Army. Wow. <laughs> you, you had no luck. <laughs> Man. But I was I was there when the war first started. So by the time I got to my, my unit, uh, they were already gone to Afghanistan. Uh, but during basic training, we were just mainly focused on being soldiers, learning how to be a soldier, then learning how to be a field artilleryman. Um, there was talk about war, but it wasn't deeply ingrained in us that, you know, we might be there one day. Mm. We, we were training and it was, you know, we forming bonds with our, our fellow soldiers, getting ready for our future job, uh, future jobs as soldiers. It was, it was a good bonding experience. And how, how long was basic training? Uh, basic training was four months, uh, two months of uh, basic training and two months of uh, field artillery training. Okay. And then what, what happened after you guys were all done with the basic training? Uh, we had to go to our assigned units. So uh, I went to Fort, Fort Drum, New York, upstate. And I, that's where I served. Okay. All right. Uh, and how long did you say you served? Uh, so I served five years total, uh, four years uh, active, one year in the New York National Guard, uh, two tours in Iraq, and uh, yeah. Got it. Got it. So like if you could just, you know, put it all into perspective for us, you know, being in Iraq and some of your tours and everything, like what were some of the experiences, you know, that you had? Like, how do you look back at it now? As I look back on it, uh, my first tour was in Kirkuk, Iraq, the northern oil fields of Iraq. And, you know, War is not what you see on TV, you know, you shooting back. It was a different kind of war. You know, insurgents shoot rockets at us. In the middle wow. Uh, sometimes they'll come on the base and start, you have to, you know, chase people down, doing, working crazy hours, doing patrols, then doing guard duty. Um, it's a, it was a mental, real mental. And, uh, but I had really good mentors. That's one thing that you know helped me survive through, through, through everything, the craziness. 
Mm. Um, I remember one time, my, one of my mentors, uh, he was asking, we were talking, we all used to stand outside and, and talk. And he said, am I afraid to die? And I said, aren't, aren't you afraid to die? And the, what he said to me, like changed my whole mindset about being in war and, and life and death. He said, death is easy, life is hard. Mm. Are you a coward? I said, no. He said, then why fear death? You should fear life more. That is powerful, man. That, wow, that's, that's deep, man, that is deep. You know, so, so did that did that help alleviate some of the fear you were feeling at the time? Fear alleviate a lot of fear, because you know you're right. If you think about it, mm-hmm. if you're dead, you're gone. You don't have anything to worry about anymore. But if, if you're you're you have to wake up every day and, and fight and struggle, you know, and it takes a lot. Just not in, in doing war in life in general. Every day, your daily life, you have to wake up. You have to go to school or go to work. You have to you know, put the effort in and, you know, in the military, you know, having that, that inner strength, that personal courage, that's what we're all about. Mm. That is, that's, yeah, that's deep, man. Um, so, you know, you had all these, you know, experiences, um, I'm guessing some trauma involved too, uh, in being in that setting, in that situation, when you got back, like when, when you, you know, when you were back to civilian life, um, did you have to do anything to like mentally to, to get through some of the trauma and some of the experiences that you had in Iraq or was it an easy transition for you? It was an easy transition for me because, you know, in the military, I said, called adapt and overcome. And I, I prided myself on being a professional soldier, being to adapt to any situation I needed to and overcome it. In the military, it's more more disciplined, more straightforward. Life is very straightforward. Civilian world is very nuanced. You know, people disrespect you in a different way. It's not straight on. It's not it's not as direct as in the military. And you have to get used to that. As far as trauma, seeing dead people, you know, seeing people get shot, stabbed, whatever. You know, I grew up in Flatbush. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you was going to say that. Like I said, it's the, the, the sideways, the, the microaggressions that, 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 that really irritates me, that really got to me. Yeah, interesting, yeah. interesting. And that's not funny at all, like, you know, with growing up in, in Flatbush. I just had a feeling you were going to say that. But the microaggressions, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Several, you know, for example, when I was, when I got back to Brooklyn, I went to, I, I went to community college, Kingsburg Community College, and I moved to the white part of Brooklyn, uh, Bay Ridge. And uh, I remember driving home from school one night because I was, I was so gun ho with school. I, I used to go in at eight o'clock in the morning and not come out till 10 o'clock at night. Mm, wow. So when I got out, I bought. I remember I bought a new car, a brand new Lexus. And uh, one night I was driving home from work, and we I mean, not from work, from school. And you know, you're making a left turn to go home, mm. and a car was in front of me. I pulled up behind the next the car. The light turned red. The car in front of me turned left. Then I turned left. Then a police officer pulled me over. And it, it was just so weird to me. 
like thinking back because he's pulled me over, you know, I'm respectful. And I asked the cop officer, you know, why was I pulled over? He said, I ran a red light. And that really, for some reason I just exploded inside. It's like, that's how I'm, that's how you, that, I was following the rules. You know, that's how you make a left turn. You pull out to the, the, the intersection and you put me, make a left turn. He said, license and registration, is this your car? And I just started like talking to myself. I said, uh, oh, I understand. Effing and driving around in a white neighborhood, you must be a drug dealer or something. And the officer said, no, sir, it's not like that. I said, so what is it like? I remember giving him my driver's license, my registration, and my military ID card. And he saw, he saw my ID and he said, oh, you're a sergeant. I said, yes. He said, have a nice night. And he left me, but I was sitting there thinking, you know, <laughs> this is the kind of things I come back to after, after serving. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of, um, wasn't it uh, the lieutenant that, that they pulled over oh, and yeah. pepper sprayed and, you know, um, harassed and threatened and all type of things, man. And yeah. he was saying the same thing, that he didn't realize that, you know, after serving that he would be treated like this still. You know, um, so yeah, man, that's that was back in 2006, you know, it's 2021 now, and I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying that you know, I have a lot of respect for police officers. One of my, my best friends is a police officer, so I, I know the struggle and the dangers they face, but it's sometimes there's a lack of common sense and the way you approach people. Mm. That, but that, that police officer had no reason to pull me over. No, mm. in my mind, I was doing everything. I was, I'm a lawful citizen. All right. Regardless of what, what neighborhood I'm driving around in, what, what car, what kind of car I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I mean, I, I do say this too that um, we do live in a system of racism, and I think within that system, you know, it, it incorporates. We talk about this on our monthly programs that it incorporates everything, you know. So it's in everything, like it's in teaching, it's in. Uh, the practice of law, it's in economics, it's in entertainment. So we find it everywhere. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, it it's going to be in law enforcement <laughs> as well, you know, um, and it's going to be in all these other avenues as well. And, um, you know, sometimes people are like, well, it's 2021 or 2022 or 2020, whatever. Um, but, you know, we, we still dealing with racism. So we're still going to find these instances, these incidents occurring all the time. So um, kind of just made me think about that. You know, yeah. So, um, so what was you know your experience like just at the at the community school? Did you think like uh, was that the plan for you to become a doctor from that point on? Like when you finished your military experience, that all right, now that I've done this, that I'm gonna move on into what I really want to do, or like what what was your mindset at that point? So my mindset was. Uh... I got promoted very quickly in the United States Army. I became a sergeant at the age of 20. I was doing very well in the Army. Mm. I was about to be promoted to staff sergeant. Um, my first sergeant, I remember we were in Iraq one day, and you know we were talking about re-enlisting, uh, and I wanted to become a lab tech. So you could switch jobs in the Army. Mm -hmm. And my first sergeant told me that, you know, 
you know, you're doing really well. Well, you know, once we get back, you might get promoted to staff sergeant. You know, just just reenlist as a field artilleryman. And I told him, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, at, at the age of 20, I had bad knees. My back was killing me. I, I, I used to get wow. crazy, crazy migraine headaches. And that was that was from the army, like that was from the yeah. military. Yeah. Mm. So you know, he asked me what I was going to do when I get out. And I said, I don't know. Maybe I'll become a doctor. He said, Do you know what it takes to become a doctor? <laughs> Wait, was this a white person you were talking to? Yeah, he, he was a white person. Okay. And I, and I told him, I said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll I'll find out. Adapt and overcome. That's what you taught me. And so. I, I got. I started saving my money, and you know, I didn't even know about the GI Bill and everything. And I, I got out, so I found Kingsburg Community College. I, I went there and I started there. I studied biology. I did very well. Um, then I, got, I transferred to Northeastern University. Mm. And, uh, so, uh, regardless of you not knowing about the GI Bill, it was still did, did it still take effect? Oh yeah, you're still using it. Okay. Yeah, right. and can can you share with us like what the GI Bill is and some of the benefits? Uh, like uh, I think that you know a lot of us, like you just said, don't know about it, and even some of us that serve time, um, you know, in the military, don't know about some of the benefits. So, yeah, so the GI Bill is um, when I was in, you had to pay into it first, and they would fund your college. Whatever college you went to, the, they would pay for your tuition, your books, and they'll pay, sometimes they'll pay a, a stipend, like give you some money on the side, in addition to paying for your tuition. Mm. A, a certain amount of years, uh, but you have to certain amount, serve a certain amount of years in the military before you, you, you can get it. Got it, got it. Okay, so Northeastern, Northeastern. So Northeastern, uh, so remember when I told you about uh, Stony Brook? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it was time for me to transfer. I actually applied to Stony Brook. I applied to several schools, and I got into I think seventeen out of eighteen schools. Oh wow! Only school major I- difference. <laughs> um, and I declined Stony Brook at that time. Hmm. I liked Northeastern because Northeastern was a school that had a pre-med um, advisory committee mm-hmm. to help. And it had a great reputation, and I decided I just decided on going to Northeastern. So Northeastern is in Boston, Massachusetts, and it was completely different than what I experienced at Kingsborough. Uh, Kingsborough mm-hmm. is multicultural, you know. At that time, I think I was around 24, 25. So, but at Kingsborough, they had older adults going coming back to school. Northeastern was mostly white. I was the only black student in several of my classes. Wow. Uh, so did you I, did you know that before you applied? Uh no. <laughs> gotcha. I I didn't know much about Boston in general. I've never I've never been to Boston before until I went to school. Yeah, that that is fascinating, man, because I often hear like Boston's like one of the most racist places in, in the country. <laughs> so it wasn't really like racism I faced when I was at uh, Northeastern. It was just, it was nothing for me to connect to my classmates with. I, I've made friends, but, uh, you know, not only the, the, the race difference, there's also the age difference. But luckily, one of my, my, my good friends, he actually became a, a Boston police officer around the same time. 
that I moved to Boston, that we, we served together in the army. So we, I, I hung out with him most of my time there. Right. And, uh, I did very well there in um, Northeastern. Um, then I came back to Brooklyn. I, I worked at uh, Fort Hamilton in the same MEPS uh, military entrance and process station that I was, uh, I got uh, sworn in at for about mm-hmm. a year. And then I got accepted to uh, Howard University College of Medicine in Washington, D.C. Hmm. Uh, what what was, made you want to apply to Howard? I applied to several different medical schools. Okay. But Howard was the one I, I got accepted to, and that's the one I, I chose. Uh, now, that's a completely different experience than you had at Northeast. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was different, but it was kind of similar at the same time. Really? Know? Howard is a, it's an excellent school. You know, when they, when they say Black excellence, that's, that's Howard. If you mm. go to Howard, you see Black excellence everywhere you look. Black lawyers, black doctors, the history is in Howard. Uh, but I, I felt disconnected. Everyone in Howard is black. You know, my professors were black. Uh, my fellow classmates were black. And you know, it was it was a great experience in that sense. But it's also different in the fact that there's more than there were generations of doctors in, at Howard. You know. Mm. I'm an immigrant. I'm the first doctor in my family. Yeah. At Howard, there are different types of people. Like, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a New Yorker, Northeast. There are people coming from down south, from the Midwest, from different places, from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. You know, different types of Black people. You know, it wasn't the, the, the Afro-Caribbeans that, that I, I was so accustomed to. Mm-hmm. Um, there, it's also uh, economic uh, differences. You know, if, if there are people that they came there and they knew they were going to become a doctor. You know, my, my mother is a doctor. My father is a doctor. My grandparents are doctors. How can I not become a doctor? Mm-hmm. So they, they, were, they were bred for this stuff. And, you know, that was, there was a disconnect in me, in me sometimes, you know, able to relate to them. Um, some of them, you know, and some of my best friends, you know, they, they came from similar backgrounds and we connected there but there was also that separation the economic separation between black people uh, that you don't you know you're not taught in school and you're not prepared for you know how are you going to have a conversation about country clubs and, and, and horseback riding when, when you come from a place where you never even seen a horse you know what I mean? hmm. yeah I, I never really hear how it described like that but that that's a good point just the different um types of black people um and maneuvering through that especially as somebody who was uh you know wasn't born here you know and watching generation of generation of people that have these expectations of being something and you know you're just attempting to live up to your own expectation <laughs> like yeah i could see how that was uh difficult but um what was the journey like uh maneuvering through that through howard like i said i i had a group of friends that i bond with and they're with me till today. You know, if you look at my website, you know, most of the, the people on that website are, are, are my classmates from Howard. Mm. So. Got it. Got it. All right. So you you go uh, go through Howard uh, through their program. Um, and was the program difficult for you? Like, how was their you know the the medical school is difficult. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that. 
Um, you know, people do talk about, I do hear people talk about medical school, but no, no, nothing like exactly what it is, like what it looks like, like what it feels like. Can you talk about like what well, that experience was like for you? We're talking about like sleep and studying and te- like everything. Like, what was that like? In medical school is, think about being in college, you know, I did very well on the top of my classes. I'm getting A's and B's and doing very well. You think I'm a pretty smart guy. Mm-hmm. When you get to medical school, everyone is smart. And you mm. find out that your A's and B's aren't as, as you know, up there as is. You get hit with reality. It's, a, it's not a bad reality. It's just there, there's so many smart, very, very smart people in medical school. You know, you have to be smart. You have to be on top of your game. You have to study. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I was just blown away by the intelligence of, of some of my classmates. It was, it was it's an honor to, to watch them and see them. And even now, you know, they're doing amazing things as uh, physicians in different fields. And, you know, it, to me, it was this honor being among them. Mm. Uh, but in medical school, you have to study a lot. The first two years are the pre, uh, preclinical years where we do the basic sciences. Um, the first year, they teach you uh, what's normal, like in sense of uh, anatomy, physiology, uh, the basics, then second year is pathology, the different, what, what can go wrong, the different diseases. And then third year, fourth year is your clinical years where you spend most of the time in the hospital, seeing patients, you know, rotating through the different specialties. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about it. it is, it's a lot more intricate, but uh, that's the basics of medical school, the four years. And you're constantly being tested. I think in doing first year, every Every week we had a quiz and every two weeks we had an exam. Wow. So that, that, that second week when you had a quiz, you also had an exam. Jeez. <laughs> Man, um, do you find, uh, there was a, you know, I was reading a book that a doctor wrote and um, he was talking about just the barrage of information that just goes like left and right, you know, up and down, like that just gets thrown at you. Um, are like, doctors able to memorize this, all this information that's being thrown at them? Um, and be able to utilize it once you get into your practice. Yeah, it says like drinking uh, water through a fire a fire hose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's how the knowledge comes at you. Yeah, I've heard exactly that. Yep, yep, yeah. <laughs> but it's just like when I'm in the hospital right now. You you know a lot more than you think you do. Mm. It's a lot of stuff. I feel like I learned through osmosis, where I just I just pick it up because I'm doing it so much. And, you know, we're, we're having discussions. We're, we're talking amongst each other. That's what the, most doctors do most of the time, discuss things. And uh, discuss different disorders. And medical school is, is the, the ABCs, the, learning the language. Medicine is a, a completely different language. Mm. Learn the language so you can be able to communicate with your colleagues. And, you know, as you go through, you pick it up. Uh, you get you go through medical school. Um, as far as the memorization, you know there there are some people that are you know have, have photographic memory, and I've actually seen some of my classes with classmates with photographic memory where they just stare at a book and they remember everything from that page. Wow. Some people they have to work a little harder, but the people that have to work a little harder, you know, just have to want it a little bit more. Is that where you fit in? That's where I fit in. <laughs> 
Got you, got you. All right, so um, so you uh, finish the school of medicine at Howard. Um, is that it? Like, are you ready to go and practice and do your thing? Like, what, yeah. <laughs> what what's going on after that? So after medical school, um, I finished medical school in 2015. Uh, my father passed away here in Brooklyn. Oh man, uh, that really hit me hard. I decided to take some time off from medicine. Uh, I went and got my MBA at uh, Long Island University. And then I, so you have to complete something called residency before you can start practicing medicine. Not before you start practicing, before, before you start working. Mm -hmm. So I took some time off and then I got accepted to a residency program in internal medicine. So right now I'm completing my uh, residency training in internal medicine. And to practice medicine, you need your medical license. So after my first year in residency, I can apply for my, and then passing an exam, you can get your license to practice medicine. So right now I have my medical license to practice medicine in, any, uh, in, the, in the state of New York. Um, mm -hmm. But to become board, what you call board certified in a specialty, to complete your residency, then take another exam, become board certified. The, only, the main difference is you completing your training and it's for more, uh, more importantly, it shows that you're a specialist in your specific field and for insurance purposes. Like some insurances doesn't, don't reimburse you at, at the same rate unless you're board certified. Mm -hmm. Got you, got you. Okay. Um, so you are maneuvering through that. Um, I know like uh, you mentioned on your website, like uh, that black people, I don't even think it's just black. I don't know what the number is for black males, but black people in the uh, medical field is uh, 3%. Um, so uh, what was it like maneuvering through, you know, through that? And um, I know you are working right now. Um, so, you know, what was it like maneuvering through that type of space in which, you know, you are just 3% of that field, you know, so what have been some of the difficulties? I'm still maneuvering through it, the space right now. Mm. Uh, you know, going through Howard, like I said, all the doctors there were black. So I got accustomed to my supervisors being black, my whole, uh, my fellow students being black, fellow doctors being black. It's not like that in the rest of the country. Maybe in Meharry or Morehouse. But uh, here in New York, you know, <laughs> What's, what sets me apart from my, my colleagues is, I think, my ability to connect to my patients. Because, you know, mm. I'm serving the same community that I grew up in. And a lot of the patients, they look like me. You know, they're Guyanese, they're Haitian, they're Trinidadians, and so on. And that, that, that gives me the ability to connect. Uh, as far as the ability to connect to my fellow co-residents, my, my co-other doctors, you know, it's hard sometimes because a lot of them, they don't know where I'm from. They don't know that I'm from Brooklyn. Uh, and they say certain things or, or make some, some, some stereotypes that, you know, are offensive. And, you know, like I was saying, the microaggressions, you know, that they don't know how, how the community, the culture, where we're coming from. They don't know how to relate to their patients. So some of them are, you know, they're not the same cultural background, they're not the same racial background, and sometimes they're not even the same national background. Some of the, the, my co-doctors are not even from this country, so mm. they don't know how to relate to the patient. 
So it's difficult. And so is it in a way that like causes them like not to care about like what the patients are going through and just dismiss, you know, like, cause I've heard, I've heard that from the outside that there's so many doctors that just dismiss, you know, black people that come into the hospitals and we see some of the numbers, you know, with, with the uh, black uh, uh, women that are pregnant um, and the mortality, the mortality rate um, with them. And um, I've had personal experiences in the hospital where, you know, my, um, you know, my wife was in pain and her pain was not, you know, value and believed and we had to fight for that. You know what I'm saying? So um, do you see that as well? I don't know from the OBGYN's perspective, but I've seen a lot more than I like of people that physicians disregarding patients' uh, concerns or, and disregarding patients in general, speaking negatively about them. It, it's, it's, it's disheartening to me. And, you know, in moving in this environment, I can't be, I can't show any form of aggression or pushback. I have, I have to adapt to, to my environment. I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. Oh, I, listen, I'm an educator. I completely understand what you're saying. Because I think um, a lot of people, like, they think that once you get into the environment, like, into the field, you got to, like, have your fist up and black power and this and that and the third. But once you do that, you won't be in the environment. So it's like, how do you take care? Like you just mentioned of, um, you know, people in your community that need your services and need somebody else that looks like them, that cares about them. You know, if you're over here, like, rah, 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 black power, like, you know, like <laughs> kind of thing, you know what I'm saying? So I completely understand what you're saying, man. Um, and I know you mentioned too, like, you know, one of your personal goals is to increase like the health literacy of the community and things of that sort. Um, so in a world where, you know, there are people in this medical field that don't care about us as black people, like what is it that we need to do when we go into these hospitals and we go into, you know, these meetings and uh, talks about our healthcare and what we need to do, like what do we need to do? What do we need to ask um, when we get into these settings? So first I wanna say, you know, I don't, I don't like to generalize anything. I've, I've seen bad doctors mm -hmm. that care about their patients and don't care about this community. But I also also seen very good doctors of all races, black, whites, Indians, that care a lot. Mm -hmm. And you know, so I just want, I just hope or wish there are more doctors that look like me in the community. Uh, as far as the informing, as far as informing our community, you know, in a clinic that I, I work in, you know, I would see patients come to me. And I would go through their physical exam and go through their history. And I would, at the end of every session, I would ask them, do you have any questions for me? Or do you want to talk about any of these medications that just prescribed to me? And it was just give me a blank stare. Or they won't have any questions to ask me. And to the point where I would say, no, you should be asking me questions, you know, or, or they'd be scared to ask me questions. Like they don't want to take up my time. I said, no, this is, this is what you're here for. That's what I'm here for. You know, as a doctor, I see my role as a, advisor, you know, someone to ask questions to. And I don't get that from most of the people in our community. They just get the blank stare or whatever you say, Doc. Uh, what, are, what are some generic questions that you think people should be asking? Well, everyone is different. So there's no, there's no real generic question. Okay. So it's, it's specific to you. I think the questions that 
for, for me, it might be different for you, it might be different for your wife. You know, it, it's, it depends on what you're coming to the doctor for. Mm. So in contrast, I, I worked in Manhattan for about a month and the patient population over there, completely different. They had questions about everything. Mm. And if they know something, they would have me sit there and speak and, and talk them through it so they can have an understanding of what's going on. And I, I didn't get upset. Sometimes I got annoyed because they asked them, they went off on a, they asked why too many times. But I respected their, 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 their thirst for knowledge and they're trying to understand what's going on. Mm. And, and you can't fault someone for that. You can't fault someone for, for asking what's going on. And it wasn't, it was sometimes out of fear they were asking these questions and I understood that. And I, you know, I, I, I took notice of that. But in our communities, nothing. It's just whatever I, I can get, whatever you, you can tell me, which is fine if, if you don't have any questions, but I, I just want them to be more interactive. And I, I believe that sometimes they're not as interactive. They don't ask as much questions because they don't know what questions to ask. They don't I agree, know, yeah. They don't know how to respond to opposition. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, maybe they've already been trained that the doctor that they're speaking to doesn't care about, you know, the questions they have. So by the time they get to some, someone like me, they've already been, you know, trained to not ask questions. Hmm. Yeah, that, that um, I feel like, uh, you know, we need something like a book or something like that just dives into different questions to ask. So people go in there with the idea that, you know, they should be asking questions. I think, you know, some, sometimes with certain professions, I think, uh, you know, doctor, one of them, like there's a lot of studies that show like just the pe- people's awe of the white lab coat. And when they see that, it's like, whatever you say, doctor, like kind of thing. And, um, you know, we don't learn that, you know, you can challenge the doctor, you can get a second opinion. Um, you can ask all these type of questions and not, you know. I'm about challenging. It's not, it's not an adversarial thing. It's mm-hmm. a conversational thing. Just like me and you are having a conversation right now. It's a conversation about my health or, or your health as a patient. Mm-hmm. It should never be adversarial. It shouldn't be, I'm challenging you on this. It's, Doc, you know, you prescribe this medication for me. You know, what does it do? Mm-hmm. Why do you take this medication? Side effects. Side effects, yep. So it's, it's basic things like that. Like I, I, I hate, I hate medications. I, I tell my patients straight up: if if, it, if I prescribe you medication, that means you need it. This is why you need it, and this is this is what's going to happen if you don't you don't take it like you're supposed to take it, and, and that's it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not the kind of guy that just give them medication for no reason. Right, right. I all my patients, I tell them that, and I I I, I try my best to convey that that I care. And I want them to get better, and this mm-hmm. is why I medication. But also, I'm, I'll be working to try to get them off the medication because mm-hmm. there's some medications that I see patients on for, for years. I have this this, this elderly guy, real nice Jamaican guy. He has he was on several blood pressure medications, and you know, I asked him, you know, he's he's compliant with his medications. I said, do you know why you're on all these medications? Your your blood pressure looks great. He said, yeah, I take my medications every day. So over the past few months, I've been taking medications away. And his blood pressure, at first he was fighting me for, about taking his medications away. But he was saying, no, no, my other doctor told me I had to take all these medications. I said, if you're, you know, you're, you're exercising, you're eating right, 
Wait, let's take away some of the medications. He was on three medications. Now he's down to one. And I'm, I'm thinking I'm thinking about trying to take that one away too. That's important, man. See, that's that's a caring doctor right there, man. That's important because I think like you just said, like they get we we get like comfortable with the medication and we think that it's the medication that's making me better or whatever. Not the food, not my diet, not my exercise, but just the medication. So I think that is super important, man, to understand that this is a temporary thing, not like, you know, for the rest of your life. You do need the medication as a crutch to help you get off of the medication. Yeah, 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 yeah. Getting off of it, but not to be on it for 40, 50 years. Exactly, exactly. All right. Um, we did touch on um, you know, what you what your college experience was like and some of the tasks that you had to do in college. Um, I did want to touch on, you know, you as a physician, like um what that life is like, your nine to five, like um, and some of the work that you know is involved in what you do, like as a physician, like what it entails. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So I don't have a nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completing my, I'm in my final year of training and my residency training before I take the board exam in internal medicine. Internal medicine deals with um, primary care medicine or hospital medicine. Uh, So depends on what rotation I'm on. I can either be in a clinic uh, where patients come see me in an office setting, or I can be in a hospital where I'm either rotating through the ICU or uh, cardiac care units, or the general medical floors. So when I'm in the clinic, my day starts around eight o'clock and it ends around four o'clock. Clinic days are more structured. Uh, When I'm in the medical floors, that's when it gets a little difficult. Mm. So like I was telling your your daughter, you know, just the other day I went in at 8 a.m. and I I didn't leave till 10 p.m. So it depends on, you know, we, we round on the patients, we, we, gotta, we develop uh, treatment plans for whatever medical condition they have, and we have to institute those plans, make sure they're being followed. Uh, we work with nurses, social workers, uh, physical therapists, uh, speech pathologists, you know, it, um, medicine is a, is a team effort, and, you know, you're only as good as your team. We have other doctors, nurses, and you know it's a great experience working with other uh, specialties, and that's that's what I do. Got it, got it, got it. Another thing that you do, like, um, is workshops, man. Workshops for the community, um, in which you talk about, you know, some some preventable, you know, measures for disease and predispositions and uh, treatment options. It's like you mentioned before with the medication and taking yourself out of it. So I kind of wanted to go over a couple of workshops that you do, if you can highlight you know, some main points and some gems um, that you would probably mention like to people in the community about these things. Um, so uh, let's start off with um, obesity. So like, like I said, I, I work in a clinic. Mm-hmm. Uh, when patients come see me in a clinic, there's always three disorders that come up in, my, in, in the community that mm-hmm. my patients have. Always hypertension, diabetes, and obesity. Those three things. Always those three problems. Sometimes you get two out of three, but sometimes you hit you hit all three with some patients. Mm. And you know, like I told you, they don't patients don't ask me the questions that they I think they should, or have knowledge of their own disorders. Uh, as far as obesity, obesity causes leads to so many different issues. 
when you're obese, it's called something called dyslipidemia, your cholesterol, high cholesterol. High cholesterol can lead to several different disorders, heart, heart disease, uh, strokes, um, diabetes, and diabetes can lead to several different disorders, you know, retinopathy, uh, uh, damaging your eyes, damaging your feet, that which can lead to amputation. So there, there's you know, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. These are the main three things that our community needs to be educated on. It's not just, oh, I'm gonna take my insulin or take my metformin, my diabetes, and that's it. You know, the first line treatment for all of these disorders what we call lifestyle modifications, diet and exercise. Sometimes people don't want to, you know, invest in their health, their 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 diet, eating the right foods, and their and exercise. They rather take a pill. So, you know, the predisposition for diabetes is un, unhealthy eating habits. You know, treatment for diabetes first line is diet and exercise. Uh, how we diagnose diabetes, you know, obesity is by something called BMI, body mass index, mm-hmm. height weight ratio, uh, 18.5 to 24.99 is considered uh, normal weight. 25 to 30 is considered overweight. 30 and above is considered obese. Uh, 40 and above is considered morbidly obese. Now we have a large percentage of the population, including the black population that is in that obese category, correct? Yes, a large problem. A large, like I said, a, uh, those three: diet, diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. Mm. And the, that trifecta. And if we, if we can manage those, if we we have more knowledge about those disorders, mm-hmm. I believe that we can, you know, get rid of not get rid of or reduce that that the increase the health of our population. Mm. Yeah. That is true. That is true. Um, what about some of the things that you've seen with diabetes? You know what I mean? Like I think like diabetes, um, we kind of we kind of know about it. Like you eat this and the insulin levels, but we don't really know. No. So what are some things that you think needs to be done to prevent it? And then um, some of the things that you've seen some like really bad conditions and uh, things that you've seen people walk in with that that struggle with diabetes. So diabetes is increased glucose in your bloodstream at a basic level. Glucose is sugar. That's why they call uh, diabetes sugar. Uh, when you have these, the glucose molecules in your blood vessels are large. So when they go to small blood vessels, like in your eyes, in your kidneys, in your extremities, they damage the blood vessels. And that in turn causes uh, what we call retinopathy in your eyes, kidney disease, peripheral uh, vascular disease where you can't have no sensation in your toes. So when you get mm-hmm. cuts and you get infected, you don't feel it. And then that leads to amputations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the treatment for diabetes are, are, are several fold. You can use insulin. So there's two types of diabetes. There's type one diabetes and type two diabetes. The majority of, uh, of black people have type two diabetes. This is uh, insulin dependent, uh, uh, not insulin dependent, uh, weight, weight associated diabetes. Uh, then type one is insulin dependent diabetes where, uh, it's an autoimmune disorder where like, kind of like lupus, where, uh, antibodies damaging, damages the cells in your pancreas that creates insulin. I'm sorry if I'm getting too technical. No, um, if you want to break it down, I, I understand what you're saying, but if you want to break it down even further, that'd be, that'd, that would be great. <laughs> 
So the, the main thing is is diet and exercise, controlling what you eat. If you eat, you eat too much salt, you develop high, high blood pressure. If you eat too much sugar, you develop diabetes. You know, if you eat too much fat, you get you get fat, you get obese. It's, it's, that's the that's the, that's the basic. That's the basic. Simple form, simple form. Watch your diet and exercise regularly. <laughs> it's, it seems simple, but a lot of people don't don't understand because you know it's hard to eat healthy. Absolutely. Not, not just the, the patient's fault. That you know this is something that that you know doctors don't understand. It's a community that we live in. You know we're, we're full of Popeyes and McDonald's. Mm-hmm. There's there's no Whole Foods in my community. Mm. Yeah, they, they just open up a Whole Foods in downtown Brooklyn. I guarantee you, that's the population that's living there now. The gentrification is coming there. That's why they're there. Wow. And yeah, we we call those places food deserts, right? Where you can't even find. I worked in the city too, um, you know, teaching, and everybody got their food from the deli. I was it was fascinating. I'm like, wait, y'all go to the deli for groceries and everything? Like everything is in the deli. You know, I didn't get it until like um, you know, I started looking into the different communities that's predominantly black and brown that you can't access healthy food. You got to get out of the community, like you just said, to get healthy food, man. So it makes sense why we would have all these issues. You know what I mean? Um, if we can't get access to quality food. And when imagine when you, when you, when you can't, when you, you live in that, and, that, and you know, healthy food is expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Imagine you're going to your doctor and they're looking at you like, Oh, why can't you just eat healthy? <laughs> you know, there's, there's other factors in there. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Um, I think the exercise definitely helps. That's something that we all can do like uh, regularly is to exercise. Um, and then, you know, there's cheap, healthy foods like the cheap fruit, um, you know, salads and different things of that sort that we can find, replace some of the expensive things that we buy with. Um, but yeah, it is not easy at all. I mean, I think it starts with education. Um, you know, what we're doing right now, um, just just making it plain and basic so that everybody gets it and has the ability to change, you know, their, their lifestyles and don't think that, you know, this is how we eat. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, as an educator, I bring food in and some of my students say, well, Mr. G, that's white people's food, man. What you eating that for? You know what I'm saying? So um, it starts with the education, man. And eventually they learn that, no, this is everybody's food. This is what we should be eating kind of stuff, you know? Um, so super important, man. Super important. Um, you know, I do want to transition now into, uh, you know, our global pandemic that we have been dealing with, with COVID. And um, it hit New York really, really hard, man. Um, and I know within that time frame, you were you were in the hospital setting, man, this is, you know, dealing with all this stuff, man. You know, we got it from the news perspective on the outside and people were traumatized watching the news, you know, from COVID. And you're in, you know, in the ICU and watching all of this stuff and, you know, attempting to save patients' lives and dealing with this every day, 14 plus hours a day. Um, so what was your COVID story like, man? What was your experience from the beginning um, you know, of like, you know, from your, your hospital getting that first patient into like it becoming a major issue into where New York got shut down and, um, you know, more and more people started coming in and the different types of people that you saw and how you processed it all. So COVID was, you know, is a difficult situation, you know, doctors, um, I have no problem saying I don't know. Mm. A lot of my colleagues I've seen have have that issue, and doctors don't know everything. You know, we're not God. You know, we, we train and we study and we try to do our, our best, 
to save lives and make sure our patients are healthy. But we don't get it 100% right all the time. And some, some, some physicians believe that they have to have it right all the time. You know, they, they have to be the one that knows all the answers. And when we don't have all the answers, it, it's difficult for us. And for some of them, I, me, I'm, I'm perfectly okay in saying I don't know. Mm. COVID was one of those situations where nobody knew, but a lot of people were trying to figure it out. In the beginning, we know, didn't know what to treat the patients with. We were trying different regimens. Sometimes it was working for some patients. Sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes, you know, it, it was hard. You know, patients were dying. We had lack of resources. We were struggling to find PPE. We were trying, struggling to find ventilators. It, you know, luckily, our nation came together, and New York was really hit really bad. Uh, I think I was on nights for like three months straight, and you know it was it was rough. You know, people dying, codes being called all the time overhead, uh, patients dying. Uh, it really hit our community hard because of you know there were patients that were getting better with treatment. You know we give them some they 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 were having issues with oxygenation, getting uh, oxygen inside their body. We put them on a machine to oxygenate them. They, they would suffer for a few days, then their, their, their immune system would kick in and they would fight back and then they, they'll be okay and leave the hospital. But then there were some patients that, you know, even with treatment, they would die. And the patients that I saw, my personal story, that were dying were the same patients that I mentioned previously, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, the, the same problems that, that, you know, run through a ravage our community. Right. And, why, why wouldn't we suffer if, if we, were, we already have an unhealthy community and then this, this, this disorder, this disease comes in and this pushes people off the cliff. You know, they attack, they attack the, uh, these patients and they can't, they don't have the, the reserves to fight back. So COVID is and it's still ongoing. I just now did a month in the ICU and I saw some patients, they came in, we put them on, on BiPAP or, or put them on a ventilator and they improve, they get better, we treat them, and they, they go home. And I, I guess now I witnessed a heartbreaking, you know, this guy who's struggling on, on the machine for weeks. His family would come visit him every day. And one day I came in and I was on the nights and I came in at seven o'clock. And right then when I came in, a code was called and we ran, we ran into his room and his family was just standing right there. Everyone's screaming you know, crying while we started CPR on him. And unfortunately, he didn't make it. Mm. But that, that, that's a common story. And if I, I looked through this guy's history, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, you know, just the same problems. And he, and he was an older gentleman too. You know, there, there are, you know, feel good stories of a 90-something year old pulling through but that's not, that's just once in a blue. There's also stories of, of young patients dying. You know, like I told you, I, I saw a 34 year old guy, you know, I thought he was gonna pull through, but that's not, this patient blatantly lied to me. He told me he didn't have any medical conditions. Mm. Uh, I went home, I came back the next day and he was dead. Wow. So, 
throughout the night, you know, one of my colleagues told me that he eventually said that he had a history of asthma, but because he hasn't used his inhaler in a while, he, he said he, he didn't feel like he had to mention it. Hmm. I don't know if that would have changed anything. Maybe he would have put him on a, on a, a ventilator or put him on a BiPAP machine a little earlier, but, you know, he was only 34 years old. Hmm. But, and, but he also suffered from he had high blood pressure at 34 and he was obese. So there it is again. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. COVID is, you know, is ravaging the community. You know, there's treatments, there's vaccinations. And you just have to, the, even before COVID, if we just live, try to live healthier lives, diet and exercise, uh, that's something I, I repeat often, you know, and I, I don't know. You know, I don't. I don't know what's the best diet to eat. I don't. I don't know what's the best exercise to do. But they are specialists in our that in our medical in the medical field. There are dietitians that we, we employ at the hospital that you can go to to speak to a dietitian. There's physical therapists that knows different exercises to do. To, you know, lose weight. Mm. There's different like doctors don't physicians don't know everything. That's why we need to depend on other specialties to help us in the areas that we need help. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and, um, you know, with, within this whole thing, the trauma and the mental component is, I think, a big part of it. Um, and like I said, like we've been traumatized, like just civilians from seeing all these stories and, you know, witnessing this happening in our families. And these are like, you know, single type of cases. It's not every day. And, um, you know, for me personally, I've heard, you know, my students' stories and some of my own family stories. Um, and that itself was hard to process, you know what I mean? I can't imagine being in a setting, like when you go to work and dealing with five, six, seven people dying that you were taking care of before you leave for that day, you know what I'm saying? So, and I knew like uh, in early on too, there were there was a doctor that took their life um, as a result of, you know, dealing with all, like everything all at one time. So I, I, I can't imagine. So what, like, uh, you know, men mental health wise, like what, what were you able to do to kind of process everything and to just take care of your mental health, like during all of this and to keep from, you know, maintain, you know, maintain your sanity, you know, it's like a state of war where, you know, you're dealing with all these patients that are sick and dying at the same time. So I don't want you to feel like I'm some kind of emotionless robot, but, you know, it's kind of like I was bred for this stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I saw violence growing up in Brooklyn. You know, I saw violence in the United States. And when I was there, you know, my mentality in the army in Iraq was, I'm a soldier. This is, this is what my job is, you know, to, to serve, serve my country. If, if, being in Iraq and fighting this war was what it needs to be done. That was what needs to be done. Death is nothing new to me. You know, uh, I chose my, my path as a physician. I knew what it entailed, just like I knew what being a soldier entailed. I'm okay with death. What, what hits me is, like that 34-year-old guy, he, his death hit me. Because when I saw him, he was healthy, he was looking good. You know, he had, he was oxygenating a little, his oxygen set, uh, saturation wasn't that good, but he was, he was healthy. Mm -hmm. That, that was the, like, one of the deaths that, that really got to me. But me seeing a, a 96 year old guy dying of COVID, 
it's it's emotional seeing the family hurt, but this is not a death. This is this is not something that 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 would hurt. It it, it affected me, but it's not not as much as the the young guy dying. Mm-hmm. Um, dealing with death is some is a part of life. You know, you can't have the good without the bad. You know, everyone's gonna die eventually. And I know it's it's, it's morbid. I try with some positions to try to make the, the the transition for the family as painless as possible. Mm-hmm. So we, for that patient I told you that his family was there, we tried everything we could for that patient. We tried everything we could, and, and I, I I am satisfied in, in myself that that we did that for him. And I, I I I get a sense of comfort knowing that we did that for him. That that we. We did everything we could. The, de- the day he passed away was a, the point where his body couldn't take it anymore. And it was doing more harm or, or causing him more distress, having him on those, those machines than, to, than him having him pass away. Mm-hmm. And even though that we tried, we did CPR, we pushed medications to try to bring him back, his, his body couldn't take it. And he, he left. But I, things like that comfort me. That, that's my coping mechanism. Mm. If I go in and, and I'm just like, eh, whatever, this guy's going to die anyway. And I don't feel like we don't need to put him on a machine or we don't need to give him this medication. That, that's the kind of mentality that, that, that would have me down where I, I would think, oh, man, what else could we have done for this patient? Or, you know, maybe we could have saved him. You know, there, there's patients where I've, I've, we've been to a code we brought them back and we kept on treating them and they got better and they got so they got so bad they got they became so they got so better that we were able to downgrade them mm-hmm. to the general medical floors and then eventually they, they were released from the hospital so so those instances that you get we get a lot of bad there's a lot yeah. of bad in this time of COVID a lot of bad but there's also a lot of good that no one's focused. You don't count your good. You don't count the check the check marks where you know the patient got better, they got downgraded, and they went home safe to their family. Mm. You, don't, you don't think about the bad this patient that died that was coded and you know got these depressions and then he died. If you keep on thinking about just those patients, you know that's the patients that you know that some patients, you know, physicians think. I have a different perspective about that because of my past. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There are some physicians that don't have that perspective. You know, some of them took the traditional traditional route where they went to college, they went to medical school, and boom, they're a doctor, they're a physician. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing death for the first time. And not only they're seeing death, they're seeing traumatic death. You know, some some of those people need more to me means more counseling. It's just I've just been, I've been through a lot in my life. Yeah, I, yeah, no, that that I, makes sense. That makes I, sense. That I, def- no, I, this is what I want to do. I, I want to be the, the doctor, the physician there, especially in my community, because these are my people, and these are the people mm-hmm. I work with. You know, I remember one time, one of my 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 friends, she was in the COVID unit, and I got a call from one of my boys saying, you know, are you at at the hospital right now, and I said, "Yeah," 
He said, well, you know, this person's in the hospital right now. I and I said, where is, she, where, where is she? He's in the ICU. I went to the ICU and I, I was there, you know, at that time, patient's family couldn't come to the ICU. Mm. The hospital in general because of COVID. So me being a physician at that time, I, I gave her a friendly face to see. So that, that things like that, you know, it's, it's a lot of things that, you know, bring me comfort. The fact that I can connect with my patients on a different level than, than several other doctors. That's, I really appreciate that. So yeah, man. That, and that's why we need more, man. That's exactly why we need more. That right there, man. Um, just being, you know, recognizing somebody's face in your community that's treating you like just a comfort I could imagine that she felt when she saw you, like, you know, especially that her family wasn't able to be in there, man, is, is um, you know, I can't imagine. Um, so, you know, we, we have been dealing with COVID for quite a while. I think a lot longer than most people um, expected. And now we're starting, you know, to hear that, um, you know, this might be like the flu, like this might be just an ongoing thing that we are, that is a part of life. Um, so I wanted to just get your just opinion on um, where you think this stands. Like, do you think this is something that's here to stay or that um, it will eventually, will it be washed away with vaccines and people getting vaccinated or um, will that not make a difference to, to, to uh, eradicate COVID? I'm be honest with you, I don't know. Mm. I do not know. You know, we're getting mixed signals. Not only you're getting mixed signals, we're getting mixed signals <laughs> as physicians. You know, my my patients that I like I told you, same thing with medications, mm-hmm. same patients with the vaccine. If I think my patients need to get the vaccine, I I, I push the vaccine on them. Not just there's some patients, you know, they, they say I'm still thinking about it, which is which is perfectly fine. You have your your you know your hesitations to get the vaccine. But there are some patients that, you know, 45 year old with, with diabetes, hypertension, with uncontrolled hypertension, they're on three medications for blood pressure, and they sit down and say, Oh, I'm thinking about the vaccine. I said, No, 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 no. You need to get the vaccine. Mm. Some patients is like, yeah. I'm still confident. Yeah, that's cool. I don't push nothing on nobody except when, when it's, it's, it's needed. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I'm still a little like skeptical about the vaccine, but I, I, I kind of understand, you know, people that. I'm skeptical because you're getting mixed messages. We're all yeah. getting Absolutely. Um, from several physicians. And, you know, just ask questions, you know, to your physician. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, that, that is, I think, um, what you just said is super important because even in, in your level of expertise to say, I don't know is, um, really a breath of fresh air because I think when we get into certain positions in life where people expect you to know, like people don't understand when you say, I don't know, we should know everything. You're a doctor. Like, what are you talking about? You know, um, I think it brings us back to reality that, listen, I'm human. These are some new things that are happening. You know, medicine is ever changing and, you know, things that we knew yesterday, we, you know, things that we didn't know yesterday, we know tomorrow, like based on, you know, practicing different things and experimenting like you guys are doing right now with COVID. Um, So I think, you know, what you said is super important that you don't know. And I really appreciate that answer. Um, So, yeah, well, one thing that I think you tried to do uh, to kind of combat some of the issues, like we just mentioned, of there not being enough Black 
um, physicians and black doctors in the field is you started your own um, program. You started your own uh, venture into, you know, uh, mentoring and helping black and Latino young people maneuver through kind of these hurdles and uh, this type of field and career. So can you talk a little bit about um, Complete Health Ventures and kind of why you got into it and what the experience has been with it? So the, the, the company is a team effort. It wasn't just I that created. You know, my, uh, my partner, uh, Ms. Amy Fernandez, and my classmates, you know, we, we came together and we, saw, we see this issue. You know, there are several programs that have, they're similar to ours, you know, that try to inspire students to go into medicine. But those programs are geared towards the high achieving students, you know, the A's and B's high school students. Most of the, and I've actually taught a, a, a program similar to that, you know, like that. Mm-hmm. Think about it, when I sat and thought about it, I'm teaching at a program that would not accept me. <laughs> so there are there's children in our community that have the potential, tremendous potential, to to do amazing things. Even let's set being a physician aside, they can be scientists, doctors, lawyers, whatever they want to be, but they don't have the exposure to these things, and exposure is is very big, you know. They don't have the people in their lives that, that to show them the way. And, and that's what our program does. It, it, it exposes them to medicine. It, it shows them the different types of doctors. You know, they, they show them different variety of, of, of races. Uh, well, most of our doctors are black and Hispanic, but it shows them doctors that look like them, that came from the same communities like them, doing amazing things. Mm. So when, when I tell students my story, you know, they think I, I I was an A student all the way through, you know. They didn't they when I then they hear I, I got left back in the ninth grade, and they, that, that blows their mind away. And I still <laughs> I'm still a physician. So, they, someone kids need people in their lives to tell them that that it's doable. Being a physician is doable, mm-hmm. and I think they have a, a, a minor spark. In my, I'm hoping our program can help that spark grow into a flame. Got it. Got it. Uh, for those listening that that are interested in, you know, your program, how would how would they get involved in that? Well, right now we we just not started. We're, we're working through the New York City school system. We're working with one school right now, uh, and we're still trying to finalize a contract with them. Uh, but you can always go to our website, reach out to our CEO, Ms. Fernandez, and you know, you can take it from there. Mm. Okay. Um, with, with the students, I guess the, the mentees that you work with, um, what is it that you kind of want them to get a good understanding of, like, if, as far as, um, being a doctor in medicine and maneuvering through these fields, uh, before that, uh, they leave, you know, your, your, you know, your, your, before they leave your program, like what kind of things do you definitely want to make sure that you implement and you have them think about and know before they leave? Well, our program is, is mostly for exposure. Mm-hmm. I want to expose them to medicine early on. Like like the TS, TLC show did for me, exposed me to medicine, but it didn't really give me an in-depth knowledge about the pathway to medicine. You know, like you asked, did I know how to do, have good grades? Like minor things like that, the MCATs. 
I impart on them. I, I expose them to the to the medicine. Then I, I I continue mentoring them, telling them you know what to do, how how to take study for the MCATs, what books to read, and so forth. But I impart on them that medicine is not an easy career. Mm-hmm. You have to want this, and there'll be several pitfalls in in your in your way. There's several people in your going to be in your way that they're going to be telling you it's hard, it's going that you can't do it. That you know you can find an easier job, or you have to really want to do this. You should not have someone push you on. on, on I, I have a, a three-year-old son, and I'm going to expose him to medicine, but I'm not going to demand that he goes into medicine. And there's, a, there's a big difference. And if he I hope if he wants to become a medicine, his pathway is going to be easier. It's going to be easier than my pathway. But his father is a physician. Right. His father is a physician. So a lot of kids they don't have that in their life, and our program brings that to them. If, even if they don't have a, a doctor in their family, they have a doctor in a, our program that they can reach out to and connect with when they, when they need letters of recommendation, when they need to speak to someone about the pathway, and then when they just need advice in general. Uh, or sometimes when you need you know, someone to reach out to when you're going through some, a difficult time. Because you know, medicine, is, is, medicine is a lifelong journey. Mm. Yeah, on this path, you're 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 in it for life. No. Yeah, that is um that's excellent work that you guys are doing, and I hope it just grows and grows and grows and grows. And you know, uh, you know, as we t- continue speaking, like you tell me about all these success stories of these kids in the city becoming doctors, man. Because, like you said, man, like um, you know, some kid might be you know the smartest kid in their grade or in their school but not really show it because they're not challenged or they're bored or whatever it is. And they might not think that they're that intelligent, like, you know, like your story. And they might not think that these avenues might be an option for them. You know what I'm saying? Um, so I think people like you that can share the stories of, yo, yeah, I was just like you, you know, I got left back. I was getting bad grades. I was cutting school. Like, and I changed, I changed my lifestyle and this is what I do now. You know what I mean? Like that right there is like a whole new, pathway opened up in that in that kid's brain that wow like wait what you know I went I was um the other day I was um getting some food and there was a a little boy online um um you know he's like six or seven and um you know I was talking to him for a little bit and he asked me what I did and I told him I was a teacher and he was like you're not a teacher I'm like yeah I am he's like you're not you know and um, I'm like, why do you think that? He's like, yeah, you're not really dressed like a teacher. Like, you're not a teacher. So I just, I showed him my like professional card or whatever. And he was like, wow. <laughs> so that right there opened up a pathway in his brain, you know, that I don't, I don't have to have a suit and tie to be a teacher. And, um, you know, the fact that I look young and I, whatever it is, it don't matter. Like, you know, so I hope that, you know, that kid, you know, got something from, from that experience. But it's about those those kind of things like that, man, that open up the pathways in these kids' brains. Because like you said, we don't see it on TV that much with, uh, you know, Black people being doctors and having all these different type of professions and um, in spaces where, um, you know, they, they have, um, you know, uh, power and authority and things of that sort. So I think that's super important, man. Um, all right. I wanted to tackle some of your favorite things, uh, a little game here called What's Your Favorite? um identifying some of your favorite things so you, you could elaborate if you want or you can keep it short and simple all right so i know you are from guyana so i don't know if you go back often um but what are your favorite things about guyana 
Uh, so last time I was in Ghana was uh, the year before I joined the army when I was 16. So I think that's around 2000. Mm-hmm. 21 years since I, I've been a little, I've been a little busy. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I love the food. I love the weather. You know, I love seeing my grandparents. I know my grandparents. I, my grandparents are alive. Uh, yeah, the country is beautiful. You know, I've heard it's, it's changing a lot, you know, a lot, a lot more modernization. Uh, when I'm hopefully when I finish all my training and I have time, free time, I'll, I'll go back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, when you went when you were 16, did you have like a favorite spot like that you went to? Uh, no, not really. I, I, I was young. I just went around my mother visiting all, <laughs> our family in different parts of Guyana. Gotcha. Do you have a favorite food from Guyana? Like, like you just said, like the food is uh, one of the best things about <laughs> Guyana. I love roti and curry. Man, you can't, can't go wrong with roti, man. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't go wrong with roti. I, I, I have some roti every now and then too, man. Like just, it's, it's, man, can't talk about roti enough, man. Um, and curry, this curry spice, man, you could do so much with it, man. Um, I think just around the world, curry is like one of the most like uh, loved uh, spices, man. Yeah. You know, um, do you have like a favorite medical show or movie? Like, you know, like there's all type of different things like, uh, you know, House. Um, I-, I used to watch House like in high school. <laughs> you know, it's like dramatized, but it's interesting. Um, uh, there's I, there's all types, man. Um, uh, I-, I don't look at really- it. I don't look at any of those shows. <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Um, no shows, no movies. No shows, no movies. <laughs> Medicine can be, be figured out in one hour. Uh, one hour show. Oh, man. Why is that? Do you think it's too dramatized? or? I, I don't know. I never really looked at House or was it Grey's Anatomy or anything. Yeah, I was going to mention Grey's Anatomy. I've never watched Some of my students are like, man, I love Grey's Anatomy. I want to be a doctor now. I'm like... Is that is it similar? I don't know. <laughs> a lot more of medicine than those shows, and if they go into medicine thinking that it's gonna be like that, <laughs> a rude awakening. Oh man! All right. Uh, people in their lives to tell them what medicine is really about, and not thinking about these these shows on TV. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what has been your favorite thing about the work that you do, like um, with medicine? Uh, I love when I'm in the clinic and I speak with my patients. Like I, I know I gave you some examples, but I love interacting with my patients. You know, connect the connecting with my patients is one of my favorite things. You know? Got it, got it. And then with the young people, what has been your favorite thing about uh, the mentoring work? Again, connections. You know, uh, showing them the, the pathway. Like I, like I said, you know, being someone that I needed when I was younger. Got you. And, you know, I got to ask, uh, you know, your favorite thing about being a father. I know your son is three. Um, so what, what has been your favorite thing about being a father? Oh, I love, I, love, I love spending time with my son. I love seeing him grow. You know, I remember this the other day. He, he used the potty and I was sitting right next to him in the bathroom using the potty. You know, <laughs> I'm sitting on the floor in the toilet. Watching a kid poop and to me this is amazing. <laughs> That's <laughs> that father life. Yep, yep. I'm excited to see him poop. Party. <laughs> yeah, that is wonderful, man. Just seeing seeing him develop, man. Um, and the, you know, the uh, the different uh, stepping stones in life. You know, 
Um, it's amazing, but yeah. All right. Um, so I know you're involved in a you know, group called uh, the Gentleman's um, Factory, um, organization of black males, uh, professional black, black men. Um, can you talk some more about it uh, for as far as the, the work that they do and um, you know, why you became a member? Uh, so the founder, Jeff Lindor, I think he founded in 2014. Like, like you said, a professional network of young black male um, professionals doctors, lawyers, a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, a lot of real estate guys. Uh, I got involved with it because like Jeff's motto is, you know, we grow, black men grow in isolation. Mm. You know, and when we, when we pull our resources together and we help each other out instead of trying to hinder each other, you know, we, you know there's no limit to the success that we can achieve. You know, Jeff, is the one that you know helped us inspired our group to help create the Google Ventures. Now, being a member to me is it gives me a community I can bounce ideas off of. Uh, you know, fellow professionals I can go to to discuss different ideas, different uh, topics, and that, that's how it helps benefit me. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. Um. So. Let's flash forward into the future, right? Um, and you're approaching retirement in the field of medicine. Um, what would you want people to remember about the work that you did and the type of uh, doctor that you were? Um, you know, when you did when you did your work. So I don't see myself retiring. <laughs> uh, slowing down, definitely, but retiring is always someone to teach. Mm. Do what I'm doing right now. I, I want to be able to create doctors, create physicians, uh, inspire the next generation. Because there's, there's several things you know that we spoke about: the hypertension, diabetes, uh, obesity in our communities. We, we desperately need more black doctors in our communities, and to, to help help your lives, to help help your community, you know. I actually care about my patients and I want them to do better. I want them to live better lives, longer lives. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I, like I told you, I've seen some physicians that don't really care. And it's, it's difficult for me to see it sometimes without, you know, sometimes I feel like chained, I guess. Like I can't speak up as, as loud as I want to because of, the, the period I am in my training, the uh, position I am in my training right now, but eventually I will be in a position to to speak out. But my way of combating that and for now and future is by doing what I'm doing, helping to inspire and mentor the next generation of young black and Latino physicians. Because mm -hmm. those are the kind of people that really, if you come from a community, you, you want your community to go. You know, you want, you want, when you, your mother goes to a doctor, she has a good doctor that cares about her, that, that provides her the, the same treatment that she would provide any other patient, that they would provide any other patient, you know, that, that really cares about your, your, your mother, your right. father, your brother, your sister. Uh, so my future is, you know, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. Uh, hopefully I, we build this company, this business a point where we can inspire and mentor as many students as we can and have an impact 
and that's it. You know, make sure I, my, my son grows up in the community where, you know, he's taken care of and he, he feels confident enough to go to a doctor and have a conversation with them and ask the right questions, just like any, anyone else in the community, whether you have money or you don't. Well said, well said. Man, uh, Dr. Blackman, it has been a pleasure chatting with you, man, and getting some jewels, some information um, about uh, the field of medicine and um, your own experiences. So thank you for coming through and uh, sharing that with us. Um, do you think you could leave us with your favorite quote and what it means to you? Uh, yeah, so I have several quotes, you know, several. In the military, we're surrounded by you know, great men with quotes about different things that, that inspires you, you know. But uh, when I was in the military, I, I read a book. It was called The Prophet by Khalil Gibran. Hmm. That book, uh, you can't read it just once. You have to read it several times. And one, one quote stood out to me. It was, uh, this is just a, a small part of it. It says, you have been told that even like a chain, you're as weak as your weakest link. But this, but this, is, but this is but half the truth. You are also as strong as your strongest link. Hmm. And a lot of people, they miss that second part. Because I've never heard that second part until I read that book. Because everyone's telling you, you're only as, in the military, you know, you're only as weak as your weakest link. But no one ever tells you that you're as strong as your strongest link. That's you know, powerful. That it is. Because if you go through life thinking that you're the weakest link and there's, there's nothing better for you, you won't even strive to achieve anything greater. Mm. And hopefully, if, if you know, more, more kids in our society see more black doctors or more black professionals in general, that they can say, you know, that's the strongest of our community. You know, they're not just seeing gangbangers, people shooting each other, people robbing people. You know, they, they only see, you know, the worst of, our, the worst of us. Mm. They don't see the best of us. You know, it's not in their face as much as the other stuff. And hopefully, you know, and that, you know, that, that's, that quote really touched me. And that's what I want to portray and I want to showcase to the world and to students and to other people in general. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, we might decide to go into medicine or don't change your field of study at a, a later age also. So. Very true. Very true. Powerful quote. Um, and I am going to add that in every time I hear somebody say that. You know, you could be you're only as weak as your weakest link. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm going to add that in. Um, yeah, thank you for that, man. Um, and it just changes, I think, your mindset so much with that quote. Like, uh, you know, being as strong as the strongest link and understanding the capability of you being as strong, you know, not just worrying about looking at the weakest link. Um, yeah, that's that's definitely one, one to save, one to save. Um where can people find you that are interested in the work that you do um, and asking more questions about, um, you know, being a doctor and uh, different things that, you know, you do like the workshops and everything. Where, where can people find you at? Well, you can find me at, uh, like I said, the website, cleanheadventures.com. And you know, um, you know, I said that. Website. All right. There it is. There it is, guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, man, if I met Dr. Blackman in high school, I might have been a doctor. 
might have yeah. been a doctor. <laughs> um, very inspired right now. I hope you guys are all inspired um, with this story. And I hope no young kids are thinking, man, I could cut class and not even in, and get left back and be, listen, listen, it wasn't by choice. All right. So let's not think that <laughs> we could do all this stuff, man. Um, but uh, definitely a motivating and inspiring story and an understanding of, you know, you could do all these things despite, you know, despite what you've been through. Um, so anybody that's listening, no matter what age, what you've been through, some of your experiences, uh, it could still go down. It could still go down. Your goals and what you want to get done and what you want to accomplish. Uh, and I think Dr. Blackman is definitely living proof of that. Uh, so definitely share the story, guys. Uh, thank you for listening. And of course, remember, your mind is the most powerful tool in the universe. Therefore, if you can think it, you can do it. If you believe in it, you can be it. And if you fight for it, you can have it. The world is yours. This has been your host, Mr. G, and I will see you next time on Mastermind.